0: Thank you. Thank you for the invitation. It's an enormous pleasure and an honour to be invited to give this Lichfield Lecture. And I want to begin by thanking the University of Oxford for inviting me and to Trish for nominating me for it. And I also want to pay tribute to the man in the centre of this picture. And this is George Henry Lee, the third Earl of Lichfield, after whom the lecture is obviously named. He was elected Chancellor of this university in 1762. Thomas Wharton uh, described him as someone who cultivated every species of polite literature. He became a conspicuous pattern of those amiable accomplishments which enliven conversation and adorn society. And Boswell described him as a most humane and agreeable man. He made a remarkable contribution to medical education. He was chair of the trustees of the late John Radcliffe, whose works we see around us, and with the then princely sum of 40, four thousand pounds to spend, and this was 1762 or so, he decided that the most appropriate use for this money would be an establishment um, of the establishment of an infirmary, which crucially would offer practical instruction to medical students. And of course, this was at a time when medical education was largely theoretical, to the extent that patients were examined at all, as was the case in some. continental universities, it was limited to a few cursory glances, a feeling of the pulse and perhaps an inspection of the urine. But the Bishop of Oxford, a man ahead of his time, said that infirmaries are the best, the most attractive school of physic. The book of nature is there laid open to the student. Now the Earl also established the Litchfield clinical professorship, with the post holder required to attend the wards on two days each week but only between November and March to give lectures on particular cases. Now, more than two centuries have passed since then, but I would argue that the principles that were promoted by the Third Earl are as important as ever. By requiring the Litchfield professor to attend the wards, he was sending out a strong message that academics should descend from time to time, at least between November and March, from their ivory towers to engage with real people. He wanted them to understand health and disease by talking to patients, a radical thought, by touching them while they were still alive, and by learning from them. Well, unlike many of the previous Litchfield Lectures, I will not be talking about clinical medicine. Instead, I want to talk about the health of populations, and hopefully not from an ivory tower but by seeking to understand their lived experiences and how they're influenced by laws and policies. Now, when we think about laws and policies, I have no illusion about how difficult this is. It's not enough for us to influence policy by publishing papers in learned academic journals. I can only make a difference if my research is taken up and used by politicians and their advisors. And we all know that this is far from easy. I've considerable sympathy with um, Bismarck, who's alleged to have said, apocryphally, that there are two things that should never be made in public, laws and sausages. Many of you will be familiar with that excellent book, The Blunders of Our Governments, which serves as a reminder of the problems that we have in our legislative process led by a parliament that has just voted to give it no say whatsoever in the greatest constitutional change we are to experience in decades. And this book is a reminder of why we need the courts to make some sense of what often emerges from Westminster in a process that, the, uh, that Lord Wolfe, former Lord Chief Justice, famously described as binge lawmaking. Well, in circumstances such as this, I often find it helpful to refer to the work of another famous, Um, person with strong associations uh, with Oxford. And that, of course, is Charles Dodgson, or as he's better known to many of you, Lewis Carroll. As you know, he was a tutor in mathematics at Christchurch, and many features of the college figure prominently in his books, the stairs at the back and the, the rabbit hole and so on. And there, of course, he and Alice are still remembered to this day in a stained glass window in the Great Hall. And I want to show throughout this talk today that Lewis Carroll actually was far ahead of his time. He offered remarkable insights into the world that we live in in this country today. But let me start with the title of my talk. I've also taken taken my text from another Oxford graduate, and this is from Theresa May, who studied geography at St. (laughs) Hughes in the 1970s. She studied geography. Now, this rather begs the question of why she later appointed as her Secretary of State for International Trade, Dr. Liam Fox, someone who has claimed that we now live in a post-geography world. This is especially surprising and risky, given that Dr. Fox will soon be setting off on a trip to Africa, presumably without recourse to the conventional maps. And perhaps if she had read history instead of geography, she might recall the fate of a, an earlier Scottish doctor who went off to Africa without maps. This time, however, I fear that he may be waiting some time for an American newspaper to send someone out to find him. Well, the Prime Minister sees herself as a revolutionary, and on the day that she entered Dining Street, she spoke of the need, all the things we would like to hear, the need to tackle the shorter life expectancy of those born poor the harsher treatment of black people in the criminal justice system, and the low educational attainment among white working-class boys. Six months later, in a speech entitled The Shared Society, she restated this commitment. The British public, we were told, had voted in the EU referendum for a quiet revolution that would change the way our country works I'm sure you all saw those words on the ballot form at the referendum. Just They were written perhaps in invisible ink. Now, the challenges of distilling meaning from the Prime Minister's words are well known. This, as you know, is her dictionary. And this also is something that uh, Lewis Carroll seems to have anticipated, and to quote from Through the Looking Glass, said, When I use a word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. The question is, said Alice, whether you can make words mean so many different things. But on this occasion, she offered us some clues as to what she meant, not with Brexit, but with her shared society. Importantly, she seemed to be focusing not on the, what she termed the obvious injustices that often attract a lot of attention, and she included in those things like social justice and social mobility, the things that we in public health are used to working with, Instead, her focus was on something different, what has been termed the precariat or the just about managing. So who are the just about managing, or the jams? One of the first uses of this term was in a paper published by James Frame for the Think Tank Policy Exchange, and he defined them as the C1, C2 families, what we would otherwise describe as uh, the lower middle class and upper working class. They make up about half of all British households. And these are families that manage to get by but have little resilience when circumstances change. For example, because of rising inflation or because of job loss. Unfortunately, Theresa May's government has been reluctant to offer us a clear definition of the jams. They follow in a long and distinguished line of other groups with undefined terms the squeezed middle and hard-working families, as opposed to the lazy families. And there's a reason why they're undefined, I could put it to you. They're not intended to be a discrete category whose experiences can be measured and whose fate can be tracked by people like us. If we don't know who they are, how can we possibly know if the government's policies are actually helping them? Instead, I put it to you that the term is rather a rhetorical device, saying to as many people as possible that we are on your side and by inference other politicians are not and if you have that view the danger is that if you have a clear definition it might exclude some people, some people who might otherwise vote for you. But even if politicians are reluctant to offer clarity we as researchers can do so and indeed I would say we have a duty to do so. It seems that what we really mean are those people whose lives are characterized by precariousness. Now, this is a relatively recent concept in the UK, but it's something that's long been recognized across the channel in foreign parts. French writers studying the nature of work have long invoked the concept of precarité d'emploi. And in France, this was seen as something that was to be countered by politicians of both the right, like Jacques Chirac, or of the left, like Francois Hollande. Pietro, who used the term uh, extensively, identified a set of characteristics that defined precarity. Now, these included some elements relating to to employment, such as low skills and low wages and harsh working conditions. But it also included economic insecurity, inadequate housing, health problems, and lack of social networks. Crucially, echoing Theresa May's comments about the obvious injustices, Precariousness was not the same as poverty, although clearly many peoples whose lives were precarious were also poor. Other French writers, such as Pogam, have developed the concept further, inducing other ideas, like precarité de travail, or precariousness of work, where the employee is engaged in activities that generate little value, or tedious and repetitive, and attract few rewards intellectually or financially. And to digress slightly and go back to Lewis Carroll, you will note here how I've taken the Red Queen's advice to Alice to, quote, speak in French when you can't think of the English for a thing. More recently, this idea has extended beyond the conditions of the individual to describe a shift in society to one in which the new forms of irregular and uncertain employment, what we might call the gig or the Uber economy, now dominate. Well, eventually, because it's a long way away, this concept did actually cross the channel and made it to England in 2013 with the publication of the results of the Great British Class Survey. And this identified seven contemporary classes going from the elite at the top, the established middle class, and all the way down to the precariat, a term that combined the words precariousness and proletariat. And the term was popularised by Guy Standing in his famous book and he saw it as an inevitable consequence of development such as information technology, the concentration of power in a rentier class. Well, we all now know that the term and the concept of precariousness has actually entered popular discourse in this country, where there's been a huge rise in precarious employment. And this is a story from The Guardian late last year. As one former Labour minister said, there is something profound going on and all of this poses potential risk to social cohesion. What I want to do now is to look at some of those who are in the precariat, or at least have become so in the last few years, but first I want to think about what precariousness actually means. Now, here we have a series of definitions, I won't go through them, but what they have in common is the view that those whose lives are precarious face uncertainty and risk in several areas, including employment, income and housing. And it links to this idea of the privatization of risk. Now the term precariousness also features in the literature uh, of many of these individual issues, but also in the international discourse. For example, the International Labour Office, which notes how precarious work is a means for employers to shift risks. Again, we see this concept of a shift of risk to the individual. A shift risks and responsibilities onto workers. That is not just in employment. In housing, Researchers on housing policy have noted how mortgage providers seek to transfer risk from themselves to those who are borrowing from them, demanding ever higher deposits for housing purchases, forcing them to spend more and then, in many cases, diverting them to what is the much riskier, insecure private rented sector. Now politicians will tell you that this is a good thing, this is giving individuals back control. They then can make the decision And this argument obviously has intuitive appeal, but I suspect that for many of them, they feel that this is effectively telling them that they're on their own. We also need to understand how precariousness relates to some other related terms if we're going to research this. The UNDP's 2014 Human Development Report talks about a widespread sense of precariousness in the world today, in livelihoods, in personal security, in the environment and in global politics. And while this was written in 2014, the global politics, the insecurity, it could not have anticipated. Now, precariousness is not actually defined in this report. Um, But if you look through the report in detail, you see many examples of how precarious or precariousness is actually used. And it describes situations including informal employment and threat of conflict and natural disasters, lack of rights, exposure to hikes in food prices. And it doesn't explicitly refer to the French literature because as many of you know, there is this massive divide in the world between the Anglophone and the Francophone world with researchers never reading each other's research. But it's clear that the ideas are somewhat, are quite closely aligned. People whose lives are precarious can also be considered to be vulnerable. And again, the UNDP report looks at this, asks three questions to help to understand understand vulnerability. It asks, who is vulnerable? To what and why? For example, the poor, informal workers and those who are socially excluded are vulnerable to economic and health shocks, but whole communities can also be vulnerable to conflict and civil unrest because of low social cohesion, unresponsive institutions and poor governance. And The final term is resilience, used in many different ways by different disciplines and here we again have a problem, work that I and my colleagues have are Thank fact, later, uh, her, many of whom are here, we've looked at a co-citation analysis, looking at how people in individual disciplines often never cite work from others. But here we can take it to mean social co- uh, co- resilience the capacity of individuals or groups to secure favorable outcomes under new circumstances, and, if, and, and in some cases, by new means. The same idea has been um, invoked by Luther and colleagues, seeing it as a dynamic ability of individuals, communities, and entire societies to respond positively to shock. We undertook a systematic review of the literature to find the individual levels, um, level factors associated with resilience in the face of economic shocks. And we find evidence to implicate ten different factors from gender and marital status to income and social relations. So there is a lot of literature around about resilience which helps us to understand what's happening. But it's really important to remember that precariousness can cut across traditional classifications of social position or class based on socioeconomic status, employment status or education. Individuals can be in a state of precariousness even if they are well educated and in employment, which in conventional social epidemiology would be considered as unfavourable or favourable. For example, if the employment is, um, you know, and particularly if their employment is insecure and they have no assets to fall back on, I want to look at a contemporary example of a group that you might not necessarily think of as in a precarious position unless you are one of them or have children who are in that group, and that, of course, is British junior doctors. And this is a group that would seem to be exceptionally privileged in terms of income and, to some degree, job security. But in reality... Under the current training programs they often have no idea from one week to the next what hours they will be working or from one year to the next what part of the country they will be sent to. And it makes it almost impossible for anyone with family responsibilities to juggle their multiple commitments. Unsurprisingly, morale is at rock bottom. Rates of burnout are increasing rapidly and large numbers are abandoning the profession. This is an issue that goes all the way through society. And as we showed in a recent paper, I did with colleagues in New Zealand, this is true elsewhere. But do we include doctors among the jams? Many, I suspect, might not, but others, particularly those who have experience of what they're living through, would think that in reality, many of them are actually just about managing We were interested in the well-known link between job loss and worse mental health, and in some cases, the worst consequences, suicide. But what was surprising, particularly when we looked at the recent economic crisis, we looked across different European countries, we saw how countries had differed in what happened as a result of the crisis. And when we looked in more detail, we we found that we could explain the difference in the response to job loss and whether it led to suicide by the presence of what we call active labour market programmes. Now, in brief, these are policies that provide support for those who do lose work, give them information and give them training, help them to find a new job. But above all, these are a means of the state telling the citizen that we actually care about you. And when we look um, at where policies are weak, as in Spain, we see that there is a clear relationship between the suicide rate and the unemployment rate. As employment, unemployment goes up, so do suicides, and actually vice versa, when we looked historically. But when we look at a country like Sweden, where these policies are strong, where there is a strong welfare state, people lose their jobs, but they don't kill themselves. Now, of course, what we see in Sweden is completely different in the United Kingdom. And we've previously documented a clear relationship between job loss and suicide. And then, of course, in the United Kingdom, it's not a matter of the government saying we care about you. Rather, threats have replaced reassurance. And again, to go back to Lewis Carroll, I'm reminded of the words of the king whenever he was trying the knave of hearts, saying, and I quote, give your evidence and don't be nervous or I'll have you executed on the spot. Now, the government's preferred approach to those who lose their jobs is not quite as brutal as the king in Alice in Wonderland. It takes instead the form of sanctions, whereby individuals are forced to jump through a series of ever more complex hoops. Now, we now know that these are exploited by staff in welfare offices to help them to meet their target to get people off benefits, typically picking on the most vulnerable, such as the blind or disabled, giving appointments to people in rural areas for times before public transport is running. We have shown that the um, government's claims that they work and they get people back into jobs are simply untrue, but unfortunately, and maybe this is why I got that award, it hasn't made us very popular. And uh, as you can see, the, uh, we, were, we, were being, uh, we were accused of making leaps in which we get the facts and fi- in where we get the facts and figures and we come to the conclusion we want to. Um, unfortunately, um, as became clear, uh, our facts and figures were actually correct, um, as was pointed out by the select committee that interrogated uh, the uh, minister in question. Um, but what we're seeing here is that those who were just about managing are finding that they are being punished for their weakness in the face of adversity. Now, one of the reasons why people are just about managing is often that they're paid very little. And this means that if misfortune should fall upon them, they will have little, if any, financial resources to fall back on. A recent study by the insurer Aviva estimated that one in four British families had savings of less than 95 pounds. But some years ago, the situation was even worse. That was before we had the minimum wage. Now obviously I'm well aware that there are still people in employment who are excluded from that, and particularly those in irregular employment such as Uber drivers and delivery drivers and so on. Fortunately, a recent court ruling has made a bit of a difference, but we know that there's still a problem. But the question is, can a few pence per hour really make a difference to people? Does it matter? It's only a few pennies. If you were a bit below it and you go a bit above it, well we use a natural experiment when with the minimum wage was introduced in 1999, and we tracked three groups of people, first those who were below the threshold and saw an increase in their income, and second those who were just above it and they stayed the same, and then there were those people who were below it but because the policy was not fully enforced, they again didn't see a benefit. And we find a significant benefit in mental health, but only among those whose incomes increased, and only by a small amount of an increase in their income. But the effect was quite large. In fact, it equated to the equivalent of giving them antidepressants. Now, this suggests that for people whose lives are precariousness, a small change can make a big difference. And if the Prime Minister is really interesting, interested in helping the jams, then one obvious measure would be to make the national living wage compulsory. That would actually help them. Well, what I've been describing falls into the category that Pogam and others would describe as precarité d'emploi, but there's also precarité de travail, precariousness of work. Now, we've been looking into this in particular in France, where there has been an epidemic of workplace suicides. Increasing numbers of employees are choosing to kill themselves at work or leaving letters that indicate clearly that their suicide is related to their work. And we've seen this in a range of companies, in a range of different sectors. Um, some have actually gone into their offices, having been on sick leave, gone back to their offices and hanged themselves in their offices uh, to make the link clear. And in July 2016, Paris prosecutors announced the intention to prosecute the former chief executive of France Telecom, now Orange. Uh, and uh, it followed an earlier case when the uh, Court of Appeal found that the car manufacturer Renault was guilty of gross, gross negligence. So, there's a problem with workplace suicides in France, but what about in the United Kingdom? Well, the French government has at least recognized that it's a problem. Any suicide at work is automatically deemed to be work-related until proven otherwise. And suicides outside work are investigated to see if there is a link with work. For example, if family members have evidence like letters or whatever. But the situation is very different over here. Here, the legal position is that even those suicides committed in the workplace are presumed to be individual and voluntary acts. And the relevant legislation states that all death to workers and non-workers, with the exception of suicides, must be reported if they arise from a work-related accident. And again, we can see an obvious way in which the Prime Minister could help people who are just about managing by a simple change in the law only she chose to. Well, looking beyond employment and income, many people also feel precarious because of concerns about having nowhere to live. For consistency, and to stick with the idea, if you're not sure how to explain this, say it in French, "précarité de logement. We first realized this in a study that we did in Spain. Early in the financial crisis, we were fortunate to have access to data of several thousand people a, 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 attending primary care centers before and during the financial crisis. And we showed a significant worsening of mental health after adjusting for the usual socio-demographic confounders. And in particular, the main effects were driven by job loss, as you would expect, but also getting into housing arrears or the threat of eviction, a major problem in Spain at the time. And that was independent of employment status. So returning home, we took advantage of a natural experiment in the UK, and in April 2011, the government reduced financial support for low-income persons renting in the private sector. And the effect was actually quite substantial, with those who had been receiving housing benefit losing about £1,500 a year. We compared mental health problems among those receiving housing benefit who would suffer a loss, and those who were not receiving housing benefit who would be unaffected. And given that this was in the midst of an economic crisis, it wasn't surprising that even those spared these cuts would uh, experience some worsening in mental health. But the change was several times greater among those whose benefits were cut. Now, as a public health researcher, I found myself constantly looking upstream to ascertain the causes of the causes. Why were some people experiencing housing problems and others were not? Now, obviously, there are many individual factors but are there some aspects of government policy that play a role placing more people in situations that are precarious in some areas rather than others? To answer this question, we sought to explain various variation in homelessness claims between 2004 and 2012, and as we expected, we found that reductions in economic activity in a local area were important. These led to job losses and reductions in income with lower spending impacting on local shops and service providers. But homelessness was also associated with reductions in things that were in the government's control and in particular reductions in welfare spending and in particular spending on housing services and payments. But also social care and income support for older people. And I would just remind you that these were measures that were imposed by the coalition government of which Theresa May was a member. Now the final aspect of precariousness I want to look at is the ability to feed yourself and your family. We might call this precarité de la sécurité alimentaire. The growth of food banks in this country has been very controversial. Ministers, including some of Theresa May's cabinet colleagues, have attributed this to people who are unable to manage their finances or who are spending their money on booze and fags. Because the food is free. Economic theory tells us it's assumed that there is infinite demand. The same idea, that because healthcare under the NHS is free, there is infinite demand. And people on a Saturday afternoon with nothing better to do will decide to have their gallbladder removed, or not. (laughs) None of these politicians seem to realise that people can only use a food bank if they're actually referred to it, typically by a doctor or a social worker. And we showed that the growth in food banks followed job losses came after the job losses, the cuts in welfare spendings and the sanctions. That made us even less popular with ministers. So let me summarise so far. There are large numbers of people in Britain who are just about managing, but there are also many who are not managing at all. They've experienced job loss, reduced income, homelessness, the insecurity that comes with zero-hours contracts, and in too many cases, hunger, And this, I repeat, has happened at a time when Theresa May, when she was not Prime Minister, was a member of the Cabinet. She tells us that she is concerned about the jams, and she promises a brighter future, the world will be better. And yet, in areas like social care and welfare and health, she continues with the policies that got us into the situation that we are now in. To go back to Lewis Carroll, When the White Queen said to Alice that the rule is jam tomorrow and jam yesterday but never jam today, Alice objected that it must come sometimes to jam today and the Queen replied, no it can't, it's jam every other day. Today isn't every other day, you know. And for many, the most vulnerable in our society, tomorrow may never come. So far I've focused on the policies of the present government and its predecessor in the coalition, arguing that they have contributed to the growth of precariousness and that this has had severe consequences for health. But there is another reason why I, as a public health professional, should be concerned, and this is the the political consequences of these policies. As everyone here will know, the word precariousness is related to the Latin precor, to beseech or to pray. And once... In the days when Thomas Hobbes, another alumnus of this university, at what was now become Hartford College, uh, he famously said that life was nasty, brutish, and short. And at that time, those whose lives were most precarious were likely to turn to religion, and many still do. But at least in the 20th century, there were times with the welfare state when they turned ...to others who promised a better future. But elsewhere in Europe, in many parts of Europe... ...they turned to other groups instead. Well, as we all know, last year... ...a small majority of the population... ...not even the population of um, citizens uh, in the United Kingdom... ...and a range of Commonwealth countries... ...including Mozambique and Rwanda... um, ...voted to leave the European Union. And they were encouraged by politicians who argued... ...that the British public had had enough of experts... had warned, um, as we now know correctly, of the the, uh, profoundly damaging consequences. And across the Atlantic, we saw that large numbers of Americans voted for Donald Trump, despite what were to many of us clear evidence that he was totally unfit intellectually and temperamentally for any position of responsibility, let alone that of President of the United States. We recently published a paper in the Lancet where we tried to develop a scorecard for Donald Trump's policies and we looked at his policies on global and American health and we thought we would give a green score to those that had either no effect or maybe were good for health, an amber one for where there was some risk and a red one for where there was a great deal of risk. And this is what we found. We struggled, we looked very hard but there was nowhere that we could find any opportunity to put any green there. Now these concerns are not limited to the Anglo-Saxon world. Across Europe, parties attacking what is portrayed as an out-of-touch establishment are attracting growing support. It now seems likely that Marine Le Pen will reach the second stage of the, next, of the French presidential election. In Germany we have Alternative for Deutschland, the Swiss People's Party, the Swedish Democrats, the True Finns, Jobbik in Hungary, Golden Dawn in Greece. Thankfully, I can now say that we know the result of the Dutch general election, and I think we can congratulate our Dutch colleagues for rejecting the extremist ideas of Wilders and his party for freedom. But for many of us who study history, the parallels with the past are impossible to ignore. Many of these parties explicitly use language reminiscent of the 30s, And some of them, as you can see, have actually adopted symbols that draw explicitly on those of the Nazi era, including varieties of the swastika. In the United States, as we know, Donald Trump has attracted support, not only from the Ku Klux Klan, but also from groups that identify explicitly with the Nazis. Now, of course, scholars have attempted to understand what is happening. Our research has looked at Germany and the Weimar Republic, and we were able to show in the 1930s a clear link between the depth of austerity and the rising share of vote going to the Nazis. But it was not the very poor who turned to Hitler. They turned to the communists. Instead, it was the petty bourgeoisie, or as we might now call them, the just about managing. A study by The Economist looked at what the most important predictor was of a shift of a vote from the Democrats to Trump and that found that worsening health came out as stronger than any other measure. Other research in the United States has gone beyond that, and it's looked at other factors that are relevant here too. The role of the media, and in particular the impact of Fox News and some other online channels. Senator Al Franken, who some of you may have followed on television recently in some of the congressional hearings, um, has uh, written about, uh, the, uh, about Fox News suggesting that its coverage is anything but fair and balanced. And one elegant study that related voting patterns to its rollout on cable, where it could actually look at where people were exposed to it because it was on it was cable rather than on, uh, on, on satellite or anything else, showed that it does have an impact on voting behaviour. Now, the messages promoted by the media during the referendum campaign were not only blatantly dishonest, although in some cases they were simply repeating what some of the more disreputable politicians had been saying, but often they were explicitly racist. Now, we've been able to show that Rupert Murdoch's some newspaper, can also shift voting behaviour. It is not just in the United States and Fox News, even when it doesn't actually change underlying values. And this is in a country where a slim majority voted in favour of what they believed was taking back power from foreign elites. Rupert Murdoch. So what we're seeing is the growth of those who feel disconnected from what they see as a distant establishment. Many of the certainties they took for granted, like jobs for life, ever-improving living conditions, and children whose prospects were better than their own seem to have vanished. They look around for someone to blame. They don't need to look far, because in the shops, in the streets, and in the schools, they see people who look different. And when the politicians also point the finger of blame at those who look different, it's far too easy to accept this narrative. What they do not see, of course, is that these others are doing the jobs that they neither want or have the skills to do. They forget that their healthcare system manages only because they import skilled workers from the rest of the world. They forget that their elderly relatives are looked after by migrants. And now we have the prospect of Brexit. Although, if you were watching the Brexit committee uh, hearings yesterday, you may think that the prospect of the government ever actually succeeding in leaving the UK is as distant now as it ever was. And uh, if anybody wants to, I've posted a blog on the BMJ website only about an hour ago, um, which recounts David Davis's interesting encounter um, with the uh, committee. But how do we look at that? Well, here again, um, you know, we have these, um, the, the, um, the challenge, uh, because we return to Lewis Carroll here, and we return to Humpty Dumpty's advice that words mean what I choose them to mean. The meaningless statement that Brexit means Brexit was followed by an equally meaningless Brexit white paper. And we now know, of course, from the metadata and the advantage of having HTML files is that one can see that this was actually completed at four o'clock in the morning of the day that it was published. And even then, that left mistakes scattered throughout it, and many of you will no doubt be delighted to know that people, and all of us in the UK, are entitled to 14 weeks paid annual leave, it tells us. The Prime Minister's claim that Brexit will benefit ordinary people, but she ignores how most of our prospects depend on economic in- integration with the EU. Most of the legislation that protects us from unsafe workplaces, from unsafe food, from environmental pollution... Is based on EU law. Many of her colleagues have not even attempted to conceal um, their um, enthusiasm to escape the reach of all of these protections. Jacob Rees-Mogg who many of you will know because he spends almost as much time on television as Nigel Farage who as you know in the Broadcasting Act it was written in that it was compulsory for him to appear on BBC every day of the year. He has argued that environmental standards that are good enough for India are good enough for here. For those with short memories, I would simply utter the word Bopal. And many of us are convinced, meanwhile, that these politicians are taking our countries over a precipice. Well, the House of Commons has voted to prevent itself from applying any scrutiny to what has happened. Now, maybe our government believes what it's saying. Yet their statements suggest that they often see things like the Red Queen Who said, Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast, Brexit. And certainly when it comes to Brexit, the speed with which ministerial statements are corrected by Downing Street suggests a very high level of confusion. As the Mad Hatter told Alice when saying, What you mean is very different from meaning, when she said, What you mean is very different from meaning what you say. Now, Alice in Wonderland ends. Um, when Alice wakens up from her dream. Unfortunately, what we and millions of our less fortunate compatriots are living through, I fear, is not a dream. It is a reality. And we're pursuing policies that can only make things worse. Much, much worse. So to conclude, I want to leave you with some words from Alice that summarize how many of us feel living in Britain today. But I don't want to go among mad people, Alice remarks. Oh, you can't help that, said the Cheshire Cat. We're all mad here. I'm mad. You're mad. How do you know I'm mad, said Alice? You must be, said the cat, or you wouldn't have come here. Thank you very much. And in particular, a thank you to my colleagues, many of whom are in the audience. I won't go through them all. Well, I will mention them. David, Aaron, Marina, Rachel, Amy, Gregory, Mike Goldsworthy, Alex... Um, Danny Dorling, Sarah Waters, and others, and uh, forgive me if I've forgotten to mention anybody, Uh, and uh, our funders, the Wellcome Trust, um, the European Commission, a particular thanks to, uh, the ESRC, WHO, and to Trish, and in particular uh, to my wife and two wonderful daughters uh, who put up with me while I'm working on all these things. Thank you all very much.